looking again at how do we look at the root causes of problems, not just the symptoms, we focused on closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap because we knew that if you could work on wealth equality and wealth inequality, decreasing wealth inequality, you impacted health, you impacted education, you impacted crime, violence, all of these things that one of the key underlying factors is this gaping wealth inequality that we see here in this nation, you know, looking at ways in which we could contribute to solving that. Presenting Danforth Dialogues, a monthly podcast on leadership hosted by Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. This month, we are pleased to have Spelman College President, Dr. Helene Gale, a renowned public health and humanitarian leader. Dr. Gale became the 11th president of Spelman last summer, joining the esteemed historically black college and university after serving as CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, Dr. Gale is an epidemiologist who spent 20 years at the Centers for Disease Control working on HIV and AIDS. Dr. Montgomery Rice and Dr. Gale will have a wide-ranging discussion on changing lives through health, humanitarianism, and academic excellence. Now for this month's episode, here is Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Welcome to Danforth Dialogues. As you know, each month we bring you leadership insights from a wide range of guests and today I am honored to be joined by one of the country's leading public health and humanitarian leaders, the 11th president of the historic Spelman College, Dr. Helene Gale. From an HIV AIDS researcher to a humanitarian uh, who has provided support uh, as a leader of the CARE USA, Dr. Gale has spent her incredible career devoted to improving the lives of those most in need and we are so pleased that she is with us today. Welcome to Danforth Dialogues, Dr. Gale. Thank you, my pleasure to be here. So you've had an incredible career, starting in medicine, moving to become the leader of the world's preeminent humanitarian organization, CARE, and now taking the reins of Spelman. Let's start today with you telling us about your career journey. How did you actually get here? Well, it wasn't a straight line, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, uh, I started out in, in medicine like, like you. I, I trained in pediatrics and, you know, really went into medicine because I wanted to have a tangible way in which I could make a difference in people's lives. And, you know, we know that health is so central to everything. Um, and so I chose medicine. But you know, as I was doing my residency and working in an inner city clinic, I recognized that so many of the reasons why uh, the patients that I was seeing came in and out of emergency rooms uh, had poor health was as much about our systems and our policies as they were about the care that I was giving as an individual clinician. And so, you know, I really became interested in public health. Um, I always make the analogy when you're a clinician, your patient is an individual. When you're a public health practitioner, your patient is a pop the population. It's a community. It's a nation. Sometimes it's even the world. 
So, you know, I wanted to make sure that I could use my skills to make the biggest difference for the most uh, number of people. And so I uh, decided to focus on public health. I had happened to have gotten a master's in public health while I was in medical school. So that was germinating for me. Um, I came to the Centers for Disease Control in the two-year training program thinking I would stay for two years and stayed for 20. Um, I stayed for 20 years because I found for me a, a real home, a place where I could use my skills in a variety of different ways. I had multiple different roles while I was at CDC. But what, as I was coming into CDC, the AIDS pandemic was really starting to evolve. And I um, ended up not initially, but ultimately uh, going into working on HIV, because for me it was this blend of the scientific mystery of this disease that became, at that time, the, public, the defining public health issue of our time. But it was also very much um, intertwined with society and societal factors. You know, although anyone can get HIV just like anyone can contract any uh, virus or bacteria, oftentimes it's our social circumstances that also have a huge impact on that. So, um, you know, I spent time um, both working on HIV in this country and particularly in communities of color, uh, but also a lot globally. And I got very involved in global health, which then led me to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where I helped them to start their global health programs and particularly at a time when HIV was their highest priority. Um, as I continued to work in the area of HIV and particularly globally, those social factors what we now call the social determinants of health became clearer and clearer. Uh, you know, in, in developing countries, the reason why women are at risk for HIV has as much to do with their economic and their social status as it does the virus itself. And so I got very involved in thinking about how do you impact health but not by focusing on only the things in the health toolkit. And that led me to CARE, an organization that focuses on ending global poverty. And there we worked on issues of access uh, uh, to education, access to um, income, uh, safe drinking water, all the basic you know, again, this notion of the social determinants of health, as well as focusing on issues of maternal mortality and, and, and other access to health, but with a real focus on empowering girls and women. And, you know, we said that it is clear that if you want to make an impact on global poverty, you must focus on girls and women. They're the ones that, are, that bear the greatest burden but they also are the ones that if you can change the life of a girl, give her an education, um, make sure that she has an income, she will have fewer children later on her own terms, she'll, have, she'll be able to contribute to her family, and it creates this virtuous cycle um, that is so important. So that focus on empowering girls and women has stayed with me. Uh, it was very much a part of the work at CARE. And then finally, I went to the Chicago Community Trust at a time when I really felt, having spent mo uh, half of my career focused globally, that there were a lot of things here in this country that we needed to focus on. And so 
um, looking again at how do we look at the root causes of problems, not just the symptoms, we focused on closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap because we knew that if you could work on wealth equality and wealth inequality, decreasing wealth inequality, you impacted health, you impacted education, you impacted crime, violence, all of these things that one of the key underlying factors is this gaping wealth inequality that we see here in this nation and, you know, looking at ways in which we could contribute to solving that in the Chicago region. And now we finally have you at Spelman. And now I am at Spelman, where I hope that all of those strands of my life, uh, health, uh, social determinants of health, wealth inequality, education, all of those things are things that we can bring together and hopefully contribute to the next generation of young women of African descent who want to go out and change the world. You know, the t our tagline is, coming to Spelman is making a choice to change the world, and that's what I hope I can help to contribute towards. We clearly can see the theme, and it still is all about public health, though. And I think you did take it from an individual focus to a community, to the world focus, and, and, and we thank you for that. I, I, I'm interested, because the last month was Women's History Month, when you were at the CDC a while ago, I would doubt that there were men and women uh, in the roles. I know you started out in a training program, but then you stayed there for 20 years. Can you share a little bit about some of the women, particularly that may have been there to influence you? Yeah, so you're right. Um, there were not many women in leadership roles. And for, in fact, I was the uh, second only woman who was appointed as a center director, which is the role, uh, you know, the highest level uh, right underneath the director of CDC. And there had not been many women in leadership roles. Um, and, you know, there were kind of two tracks at CDC. There's a management track and more the scientific track. And we actually had had more women in, in some of the management roles, but not as many women in the scientific track. So, you know, a lot of my mentors were actually men. And a lot of the people who uh, paved the way for me, like David Satcher, uh, Bill Fage, and others, who saw something in me, opened doors, and um, as, as a result of that, you know, I hope I open doors for other women to to come through as well. Uh, it's changed a lot now. Um, you know, we have now had two CDC directors who are women, but back in those days, we had few women in leadership roles and few people of color. I think it's something critical that you point out, though, and particularly, and we talked about this a little bit last month when I was speaking about Women's History Month, I talked about the fact that mentors comes in all forms, shapes, shapes, race, ethnicity, and gender. And it is really about having an alignment of thought and purpose. Exactly. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of times opening up ourselves to possibilities of people, and first of all, starting with a conversation, right? To talk about maybe where our interests align, and then seeing, and also understanding that mentorship is bi-directional. Exactly, exactly. And you know, one of the things I, I have uh, definitely learned um, as um, the years 
pile up is that having younger mentors <laughs> is a great way of keeping current with today's world. And so, you know, I think this whole, the mentorship is truly bi bi-directional. I feel I get as much from mentoring as I think the people I mentor do. Yeah, I, I hope we do. And I, I know I do. And I know that uh, the insight that is provided to me from others who I mentor also helped me with the next mentee. And so you sort of get to pass it along. And so I'm thinking about, you know, the fact that both of us are fellow MDs. We know that some of the challenges that we had in the career track, I'm often asked now that I'm more in administration, what do I miss most about being a care provider? So I'm going to ask you that question. You know, I think what I miss the most about being a care provider is the close connection that you have with patients. And, you know, um, if you're doing it right, you're not just treating an illness, uh, you're not just doing a patient visit, but you're actually getting to know the person. Because if you don't get to know the person, understand their circumstances, you're not going to be effective as their physician. And so, you know, I think about patients. Uh, there's a family who I am still very close to. Both of their children had um, congenital heart disease that ultimately uh, were, were fatal. And I went through both of those situations with that family, they ultimately went on to adopt children once they realized that if they kept trying to have children on their own, they would continue to have uh, you know, fatal outcomes. But that family uh, became family to me because I would not have been able to help them through that situation had I not um, reached out to them and connected with them as people. And so I think that's that's the beauty of medicine. It's also the thing that sometimes makes it hard because um, we give of ourselves in, in very deep and connected ways. But that's what I miss. I think, you know, it, it's wonderful to know that in administrative roles, you make a big difference for many people in lots of ways. But that close interpersonal connection, there's nothing like it. I, I agree with you, and, I, and as, as you were speaking, I'm thinking about the transition that we sort of go within, but also the transition that I am seeing happen in the country right now as we're educating and training this next generation. We used to talk about cultural competence a lot, and now we're talking about culture humility, and that when you go through what you went through with the family, you definitely become humble and it makes a difference. Right. And so I hope that for those out there listening in the audience, they understand that it is a journey. It is definitely a journey, and it's the willingness to submerge yourself and, and even sometimes your own preconceived ideas to be open to what somebody else has to offer and what you can learn from somebody else. Right, thank you, thank you for that. So I uh, currently have the privilege of serving on the board of Care USA, where you, you were the CEO, and I clearly got to see firsthand um, a couple of weeks ago when I traveled as a board member to Ghana uh, and definitely saw some of the global health inequity, and lots of people have asked me, so how was the trip? 
I've been to Africa and several times. I've been on the continent several times, but I'm always struck by how impactful small things can be to a large group of people. So can you give me a little bit of insight about how you think that you all made the biggest difference during your time doing at CARE? Yeah, and I think, you know, as I often say to people who have not traveled, um, you know, we have a lot of poverty here in our country. And, you know, people often say we shouldn't be thinking about other, other places because we have our own problems here. Well, we have relative poverty, you know, um, most of us know that when we turn on the faucet, we're going to get water that we can drink. That's a privilege in many parts of the world. Uh, you know, most of us know that if uh, we go to a decent drug uh, grocery store, the food will be fresh. Um, you know, yes, we know that that varies, and we know we have food deserts in, in many in many communities. But nonetheless, we know that there's an availability. We know that if we pay our light bill, electricity comes on. Uh, that is not the case in many places around the world. And so small amounts of things make a huge difference. I think about you know one of the programs that I really loved at CARE was our Village Savings and Loan Program. You know, and this is a program where women uh, would save, collectively save, and then make loans to each other, oftentimes to start small businesses and to do things that would bring in income to their families. Now, the loans could be what to us is the equivalent of $2, but that $2 can go to start a business, buy some chicken, chickens that give eggs, sell those eggs, um, you know, go to the market, be able to you know, sell their wares. And before you know it, they have businesses that allow them to bring uh, resources into the family, pay for school fees, get their, make sure that their children have education, and really start that, as I said before, that virtuous circle. And one of the other things that I found so remarkable about that is that when a, a woman was able to contribute to her family, the value that she brought and the difference that that made even in her relationship with her husband in countries where women's status is oftentimes so low. And so just that very ability to, that very ability to be able to be a contributor versus seen as you know, perhaps even a burden um, totally shifted the dynamics in ways that um, had long-lasting impact. So, you know, that $2 loan could create a whole new cycle for, the, for a family and then ultimately for that community. Well, you will be very happy to know that it is uh, alive and well, the Village Saving Loan Program, because we actually, when we went to northern Ghana and went to the villages, the experience that my group had was meeting with two other communities that had advanced their uh, village long savings program to one now that they were contributing 
and taking loans with amongst one another and using it well beyond to now do community activities and, right. and actions. So it was it was very powerful. And in one presentation, they actually showed us how they were enabling technology to track the spending. Yes. yes. And now they are actually getting ready to. They have uh, been able to build collateral, and now they are going to banks right. and partnering with the banks so that they now can get credit lines to advance initiatives. So thank it's, a, it's you. incredible. Thank you for what you started so long ago, and it is definitely going well. And let me just one other thing, you know, you, to touch on health. Um, you know, there's so much that I could say about the programs that CARE does in health, but maternal mortality is such a huge issue. Uh, you know, I remember going to a village where just the simple fact that they put together um, basically a stretcher that could easily transport women who were in labor to a clinic so that she did not have a baby die at home or the baby die at home. So they're very simple, to, back to your point about, you know, it can be sometimes little things and there would be, you know, a group that would, that would be on call and they would use a stretcher or a wagon with a, a bicycle to get women to the nearest health center so that she didn't die uh, at home with childbirth. So lots of small things that can make a huge difference in people's lives. So moving from individual impact to public health impact, and then you go to the Chicago Community Trust. Uh, first of all, you may want to describe to people what a community trust is, but also then talk about that experience and how it parallel or different than your time at the CDC or CARE. Yeah, so the community uh, Chicago Community Trust is a Community Foundation, and Community Foundations were started a little over 100 years ago, and again was a kind of communal, a communal philanthropy. So people would pool resources so that resources were available for community organizations that were working to improve conditions um, in a given locality. So Chicago Community Trust, one of the oldest community foundations, one of the largest community foundations, and, and it was an interesting blend. We both raised resources, so for people who wanted to invest in the Chicago region, and then we also contributed resources to community-based organizations, largely, um, who were working in areas that, that we supported. And so in some ways, it was care at a local level. Uh, but with the sophistication of the third largest city in America, very complicated dynamics, um, and add to that, I was there during the middle, in the midst of COVID. So, you know, we had to nimbly shift a lot of the work that we were doing around um, uh, enabling um, small business development, working on neighborhood economic development, and, and some of the things to really look at this issue of closing the, the wealth gap, to then how do we get resources to be able to meet the immediate needs of people who were hard hit by COVID. You know, we were able to raise within the course of about a month, 
$30 million that we were able to get out to uh, communities to, who, you know, who were lacking food, support to pay rent, who had been laid off of jobs, oftentimes low-wage earners. So really an emergency response fund to be able to provide resources to the Chicago community. And then continuing that, we've started another fund to be able to work on longer-term how do you make sure that communities that were most hard hit could bounce back from the pandemic? Uh, all of that uh, very much in sync with what we were doing to begin with around health, wealth and health inequity. We're really pulling your experience, individual care provider, right. public health leader, right. researcher, and now how do we really do impact the quote unquote wealth gap? that really did influence this pandemic, all of that came to bear. Right, exactly. And as we saw the disproportionate impact on communities of color, it wasn't just that COVID was hitting harder, it was that they were also economically uh, more hard hit um, when, when people were laid off, when jobs closed, et cetera. Right. So you've been in these key roles, wide range of highly prominent organizations of your career. Uh, Danforth Dialogue is about leadership. So share with us a couple of your leadership challenges that you faced along your path and how did you overcome them? Well, you know, um, first of all, I think making the transition from being an individual contributor to being a leader of people um, is always, I think, always challenging we're often put into leadership roles because we did well as individual contributors. And so I think thinking about how do you uh, go from doing something yourself to doing something through other people and enabling other people to get their role work done. And I think it took me some, uh, a while. You know, I think my first inclination was to be closer to things than I probably needed to. And I think it takes some um, discipline. I think it takes some just learning. How do you back up and, and realize that if you're not empowering others to do their job, um, you know, you will end up having to do everybody's job and that's not, the, that's not a good role for a leader. You know, I think some of the other challenges, uh, you know, oftentimes I was um, the first woman in a role that I had been in, and uh, I, you know, had the experience where, even though I might have been the person in the the highest leadership role, a man speaks, I speak, the man speaks, says the same thing I said. John's statement seems so much more mm -hmm. <laughs> exciting. A little bit of man speak uh, yeah. mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, so I think learning everybody, especially I think women, um, and perhaps even more women of color, figuring out what's your right style in which you make sure you're not um, taken for granted, but at the same time do that with grace and graciousness. And so, you know, those are some of the things I had to learn to make sure that, um, you know, I was authentically being who I was, but at the same time um, not being taken for granted. Yeah, it, that, the, the man speak is real. It's uh, real. It, it happens, and, and I, I love what you said about figuring out how, how you address it with grace 
uh, and sometimes gratitude, because sometimes people do uh, man speak and give you the opportunity to uh, increase the dialogue and opportunity for people to learn. So thank you for uh, speaking frankly about that. Uh, it's, it is definitely something as the first that we all get to experience. So I clearly remember the day uh, when my daughter, Jane Raven Rice, who is a graduate of uh, Spelman College, uh, we were looking at all these different colleges. We had been out to California. We had been all these different places, and I was sure that she would be going to one of those colleges. Uh, and even though I have a long family history of Spelmanites and, and Morehouse grads, um, and she applied to Spelman, and she came down for sort of the first look oh, type thing that they do, and she sends me a picture and it says, I'm not just college bound, I'm Spelman. <laughs> and Spelman had won her over. So as you are ending your first academic year, tell me what you have found that makes this place so special. Yeah, you know, um, it's hard to explain. You, you almost have to feel it. But to be in a place where all you have to do is study, um, be in a place where expectations for you are high, you're not underestimated, being in a place where no matter who you are as a black woman, you're accepted and you're part of a sisterhood, um, and where everyone is conspiring for your success. You know, uh, you know, in medical school, same thing I think they do in law school. They'll say, look to your right, look to your left. Um, and one of you won't be here. Won't be here. Right, right. At Spelman, they say, look to your right, look to your left. Make sure that all of you are there uh, at, graduation. at graduation. And so there is this spirit that we are here for each other and that we can do anything we want to do. You know, uh, a young Spelman woman will come to you and introduce herself. She'll say her name, where she com comes from, uh, her major, her minor, and what track she's on, what professional track she's on. You know, there is a sense of agency that I've not seen anywhere else, and that sense that you can do whatever you want to do, and there are role models that show you that it's possible. So it's kind of like, uh, a black woman's Wakanda. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a, that's a, that's such a nice way to put it. You know, so both you and I did uh, most of uh, all of our education at PWIs, uh, professionally, uh, primarily white institutions. And uh, the first time that I went to Meharry, I you know Wakanda, the word Wakanda was not being used, and but that is probably what I felt, and I. Uh, understood it, and I think I felt the most impact at a Meharry graduation when the uh, 50-year reunion persons came together, and you understood why so many of them came back. Many were on canes, some were in wheelchairs. They didn't care. They came back because of the struggle they had gone through 
but then what they had become because of that institution. And when I asked Jane uh, a couple of words that would describe why Spelman, one of the words that kept coming back and you sort of described it was freedom. She felt that she had the freedom to be whoever she wanted to be and whoever she was at the moment without question. Right. It's a big exhale. Yeah, it is a big exhale. And I will agree, you all are dedicated to truly being world changers. However, we know that there are major challenges that black women continue to face in this country. How do you go about in your day-to-day -day activities addressing some of those challenges and creating solutions? Well, you know, I think um, what we try to do is to make sure that we're providing um, standards of excellence so that young women can leave here well-equipped to take on those challenges. Um, they learn about what's going on in the world. We try to present a um, wide range of viewpoints so that they are learning how to think critically. Um, you know, we are a school that has a wonderful reputation in women going into the STEM areas, and that is great. But I want to make sure that women also, uh, young women also learn about history, humanity, learn how to write, uh, be critical thinkers so that no matter what role you go into, you, you know, you know how to analyze information and continue and be a continuous learner. So, you know, I think that what we try to do is to make sure that they are prepared, understand what the world uh, holds for them and that, and that they have what it takes to go out there and tackle those issues. In a couple of weeks, you will have your inauguration. And uh, we don't know all of the details of it yet, but... Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you think you're going to feel when you are standing there and being donned with your uh, robe and your medallion and other things. And what do you want others to feel when they see you being donned with that robe? Well, I think I will feel um, in awe, um, not in awe of the fact that I'm in that role necessarily um, or that it's about me, but I think this institution and being part of this institution is a awesome privilege and honor. And I think I will just, uh, I, I will probably think about the young girl that grew up in Buffalo, New York, and is now standing on that stage becoming the 11th president of Spelman. And I think that will be uh, an incredible, just an incredible honor. Um, and what I want others to feel is that this institution that has been around for 142 years, will be around for another 142 years. And just as it has changed and grown and morphed um, to be what it needed to be at every point in history, I hope people will recognize that continuity, the continuity of leadership that will be 
present because I hope that uh, most of my living predecessors will be there. I think the continuity of leadership is incredibly important, but also the, the um, legacy that is Spellman. Thank you. So I, I know I would uh, hear something back from people, uh, particularly black women, black young ladies who are entering into healthcare. If I didn't ask you a question that would extend to you providing some key words of wisdom to them as they are pursuing a career in healthcare? Well, first of all, um, it's a wonderful career and I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, and as my um, career history as well as yours has shown, you may start out one thing and you may end up in something totally different. And so it is a wonderful springboard to whatever you may want to be. Uh, don't give up because uh, it, is, it is definitely doable and possible. Lots of role models to show that it is possible. Some people had an easy journey, some people had a hard journey, but people made it. And so don't go, give up. And I guess third, that we need more black women in health um, for all the reasons that we know that you know black women are disproportionately impacted by poor health. And we know that physicians that come from the community are oftentimes more able to make a difference in the lives of the community that knows them, that recognizes them, that feels alignment with them. So it's important that we're there. And uh, I just continue to encourage young black women that if that's your choice, stick with it and you'll go far. Thank you for those words of wisdom. And thank you all so much for honoring us with your presence today on the Danforth Dialogues. Dr. Gale, thank you. It has been fantastic to hear your journey and to understand your why and why so many have chosen to have you as their leader. We always offer three thoughts on leadership. Today, we begin with great leaders understand how to align their presence and purpose and experiences with the vision and mission of the organization they are leading. Successful organizations have leaders who are committed to seeing the mission through and dedicated to ensuring that the vision of the stakeholders is upheld. Having a clear understanding and alignment of both personal mission and vision and organizational mission and vision, that is, what's helped great, that is what helps great companies and great people succeed. Great leaders are authentic. They lead with authenticity. It is always easier to have a great deal of knowledge and experience about an organization that you're leading. And in most cases, you will find leaders who spend a significant amount of time in their professions. But people don't follow knowledge. They follow people. And the people they are most likely to follow are the ones who are authentic. You know who they are. And because of that, you trust what they ask you to do. And finally, the reason you trust is because it brings you to opportunities. Great leaders see their role in helping others to do theirs well. I will be willing to bet 
that Dr. Gale probably did not know how to set up a comprehensive humanitarian relief organization like CARE. I can guarantee you she didn't necessarily know how to go to Africa and create programs that dealt with social determinants of health because she didn't even know what those determinants were going to be when she got there. But she focused on helping people. And a lot of other people focused on helping her to help those people to be successful. Making sure that they had the resources, making sure that they felt empowered to do the job. Great leaders always understand one simple truth about leadership. Take care of the people working with you and they will take care of the work. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Danforth Dialogues. We are excited about our guests this year and hope you tune in for next month. As always in closing, we wish you good health and greater success in all you do. This has been a presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information, please contact us at danforthdialogues at msm.edu.